0: Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I am chief editor of ukraineworld.org. With this episode, we launch a series of podcasts about Ukrainian culture and its deep links with the European and global culture. Yes, during the war it is time, in our opinion, to talk about culture, it is time to talk about Ukraine and Europe, it is time to talk about these deep ties which explain why Ukrainians resist Russia's mad anti-European empire in a so decisive way. We are making this series thanks to support of the EU delegation to Ukraine. Our listeners know Tetiano Harkova, my partner and interlocutor, uh, you know that she's in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. But Tetyana is also a wonderful scholar, lecturer at Kyiv Mahila Academy, where she teaches at the Department of Literature. And before the war, we made a series of podcasts in Ukrainian with Titiana for Ukrainian public broadcaster about Ukraine's deep links with the European culture. Uh, so now we want to tell the story also to the English-speaking audience. Hi. Hello, Tanya.
1: Hello, Volodya.
0: So before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com ukraineworld There will be a series of five episodes with different people and as we do a lot of talks with, uh, with Tanya, so we decided to start with her. So Ukrainian culture, indeed, uh, during the war, do you think it is worth talking about it?
1: Yes, I'm convinced that this is a high time to talk about that because in other, other otherwise we don't have any reasons to fight. So uh, if we fight, it's in order to have our own right to have our own culture, Ukrainian culture, European culture here. And indeed, I think that this reflection—it started for us personally many years ago—and specifically in the series you you mentioned uh, in the beginning, so Ukrainian culture, so Ukrainian culture, we, in its ties, in its links to European culture, is something extremely important for us because this is a fight for subjectivity. What Putin wants to erase from in, in Ukraine? You mean for
0: for, for agency, for agents, being an agent, agent,
1: agent right? Agent, being being subject. And when we uh, reinvest this perspective and when we try to stress and try to show all these forgotten pages, sometimes forgotten pages of uh, Ukrainian culture, we highlight the fact that we are subjects, we are actors. And Ukraine is an actor with its own Ukrainian culture. And that's simply what, that's only because we are, what, uh, what we are fighting for, in fact.
0: Let's start from the very beginning very beginning for me it's for example herodotus who is mentioning uh skiths you know and and these steps the black sea steps so basically the ukrainian current ukrainian territories and these territories which russia is trying to capture right now and so which this is already
1: occupied like in Kherson. Yeah,
0: yes so this is south of ukraine these are very important lands this the beginning of the eurasian step and these skithian tribes which which uh uh, which have a, a very important uh, heritage and by the way it is also robbed by Russians right now uh, so we, we hear the stories of scythian gold which is which is robbed by the Russians but it is very important and very important that in ancient sources there is already this kind of a reflection upon upon this we know that you know Greeks were settling also in the northern black sea in Crimea and uh, the Khersones in, in Crimea. These are very important important stories. So in a kind of way, we are deeply connected with these ancient truths. And uh, I don't know if you agree with me, we have this uh, kind of a, an, an attempt to go back to these ancient truths more and more increasingly, right? So we can talk about, for example, Ukrainian Baroque, and Ukrainian intellectual tradition like Skovoroda, Grigory Skovoroda. Uh, we are celebrating uh, 200 years from his, uh, from his birth this year, this, this particular year, this, year mm-hmm. right? No, 200 years, what I'm uh, talking about. 300 years, 300 of course. Years. 300 years. Uh, and uh, Skovoroda is a remarkable combination of a European style of thinking and kind of a maybe not so much European style of living because he's not a university professor. He's not a, a preacher, you know, an abbey like in, in, in France or whatever. He's a wandering philosopher, a philosopher... Both wandering and wandering, you know. <laughs> so, philosopher who is coming from a town to town, from a city to city, a kind of a de- delocalized personality, right? But a, in
1: a way, he's uh, very much likely to like to Rousseau, for example, to, to Jean Jacques Rousseau, a French philosopher who also admired, admired this walk, this philosophical walk, and La, he admired, promenade, yes. La Promenade, and all this idea that ideas are linked to physical effort as well. So, in a way, there is also a European dimension of Skowarada and the European um, parallel to to Skowarada's way of living as well. We will come back to this. It's it's important that
0: it is 18th century, so they are kind of living at the same time, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Rigoli Skowarada. But Skowarada is a person who really invests so much in his writings uh, of the Latin writers, of Greek writers. He translates a lot from, from the Roman writers, from the Greek writers. Then we can, for example, say that uh, the first translators of Homer into Russian, uh, it, it was, he was Ukrainian, called Gnedych. You probably know from our childhood, we were reading Homerus, uh, Iliad, and Odyssey, and it was Gnedych uh, or Hnyedich. He was from Poltava. And then all this uh, kiev Mahila education, uh, which was in 17th, 18th century, which was deeply in this Latin education, Latin texts. And then we see one of the latest kind of examples of the Ivan Kotliarevsky from whom we started this Ukrainian vernacular literature, in vernacular Ukrainian, what he does. He does a travesty on Virgil's *Aeneid*. right? So Ukrainian literature in vernacular started with the kind of a dialogue uh, with a great Roman poem, which is in itself a dialogue with Homer's Odyssey, so it's it's remarkable how this antiquity goes on and on and on. We can uh, we can mention, for example, the 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 um, Dragomanov, Mikhailo Dragomanov, one of our greatest intellectuals, who was basically a historian of ancient history and took many ideas of Republican or democratic society from the ancient history we can talk about Lesia Ukrainka our greatest writer and uh, how deeply she is in rooted in these ancient topics in the
1: ancient Greek culture and uh, most surprisingly here is that this culture is forming is being formed during some time the historical periods where there is no Ukrainian state as it is so we are talking about the dialogue we are talking about these uh, links we are talking about these uh, uh, um, these ties to European culture to European antiquity while Ukraine is not kind of independent culture independent State. It always happening when Ukraine is a part of something else, and that's why it is so difficult to find and to re- reinvent the subjectivity of Ukraine. But it, it is important to to link all these stories in one because this approve this European roots of of uh, of Ukrainian culture indeed and this very beginning from the step and is also the place of the rebirth of Ukrainian culture because if we speak about 20th century in these very steps i mean in Kherson oblast which is now unfortunately occupied by russian army in the village called Chernyanka we see the um, the birth of this Ukrainian futurism which be, later becomes this famous russian Russian, what they call it, Russian avant-garde, and people like I don't know Belukh, Mayakovsky, but also Kazimir Malevich. So people linked to all these movements. So people who are internationally recognized and known, and it, all it happens in in this Ukrainian step, and in this Ukrainian territory. And with all this Ukrainian mythology, I would say about step, about skis, about the about this uh, way of life, about this uh, paysage, about all this perspective, which is uh, uh, closely linked to ancient culture. So yes, indeed, Ukraine is a place of this dialogue, and yes, indeed, Kotlarevsky, when he reinvents in a, in this in his own way um, this aeneid of uh, Virgil when when he's having his own conversation with this is it's also about empire um let's develop it maybe later it's also about empire and about uh, the vision of empire because Kotlerevsky is politically uh, it, it is also politically very important text to Ukraine um, so culture is a place where Ukrainian identity cultural identity is given birth to political identity and that's why, for example, let, we'll talk about that Rasevchenko, Ukrainian poet of the nineteenth century, he is extremely important for Ukrainian culture because he is the reason, the root of this modern Ukrainian identity. Not a, a governor, not a president, not a um, king. But in Ukrainian culture in, in Ukrainian situation, so this identity, the nations comes from culture and uh, and not vice versa no not it, it is it is Ukraine is born yeah? I mean modern Ukraine is born with a poet, but not created uh, not born with a king or with a dynasty or with a political regime or whatever
0: and that was also a European phenomenon, so we change a little bit between centuries, but maybe later in this conversation, we will we, we'll try to be more systematic. So uh, to our listeners, don't, don't worry, we will try to, 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 to do some conclusions. But uh, for Taras Shevchenko, for the 19th century, this romanticism, this idea that the poets have a sac- sacral role to play in the society, it was also a pan-European idea. I remember this book by uh, French literary critic, Paul Benichoux, Le Sacre de l'Écrivain, uh the 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 sacred of of the writer when he talks about of course the german literature of the time very important we can talk about Polish literature of the time, Adam Mitskevich and, and uh, Juliusz Slovatsky and, and, and others. We can talk about the French literature or the British and also Ukrainian literature, right? So trying to seek some wisdom, which is beyond both politics and science.
1: Yeah, but the, maybe the difference is that behind Shevchenko, there is no king and no prince and no monarchy and no nations. Yeah, I mean, he's cre- literally creating this nation for for Ukraine. And there's a difference because he has no Ukrainian idea. I know just to to found his uh, his vision of Ukraine, no political idea behind, no no political reality. It, yes, a political idea, but no political reality because Ukraine is not is not an independent state at that moment, and there is no uh, sovereignty, uh, if I may say, behind him uh, when he is found. So this is in a way. This explains why Ukrainian culture is somehow more fragile. More fragile because without any political structure behind it, for many centuries, let's admit it, um, it was very easy for Russia specifically to steal whatever comes from Ukraine and to present it as Russian culture, what is reality now. So they were, for example, uh, pretending all, many at least, many Ukrainian writers. We'll talk maybe about uh, Markovovchok, who became, uh, on the contrary, Ukrainian writer, but then she moved to Europe. Uh, And uh, Gogol and Malevich and many, many people from Ukrainian culture as Russian writers or painters or whatever. Because Ukraine was at least in the 19th century before and after a part of this empire. Um, And the lack of this political identity... Uh, it had its consequences for Ukrainian culture. And now we have to reinvent and to restore this cultural heritage and to claim that these people were Ukrainians, even if there were no Ukrainian independent and distinctive state.
0: One of the biggest examples is, of course, Ukrainian avant-garde. And your work very much on Ukrainian avant-garde, we're talking about early 20th century, the key name is of course Kazimir Malevich, who is a, 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 a painter born in Kiev to a Polish family. So I would say that he's at the same time close to the Polish culture, to the Ukrainian culture. His first languages were Polish and Ukrainian. And now he's really presented everywhere as a Russian avant-garde. Can you tell us a little bit more about this context, maybe other names of this uh, Ukrainian avant-garde?
1: yeah Malevich is a very specific case because he was really born in Kiev, but this is not uh, in itself a decisive fact. The decisive thing is that for example, in his, in his autobiography, he states that the most important influence on his uh, choice to become a painter it was Ukrainian peasants. you know he spent um, a lot of time in Ukrainian villages because his father was a kind of engineer. And these uh, sugar plants, something like that, and he spent a lot of time uh, in in simple Ukrainian villages, and he observed how people created art, uh, this kind of primitive art, I would say, in a in this uh, in this context. And he, as a child, he was so much impressed by these colors of Ukraine. That, the, that that he recognized many years after that that it was decisive for him. I mean, all these early years, and he was also making a contrast between Ukrainian peasants and all these pro, um, industry people, industry people who were uh, living in cities uh, and who were people, as he said, uh, without art. You know. And this kind of art, when people were painting their houses and their um, pitch, how you say it, uh, in in simple uh, houses, it was an example for him. And all these colors uh, in his first periods, when we claim that Malevich, he had some influence from Fauvism, from this French phenomenon of Fauvism, uh, but at the same time, they were colors of Ukraine. And the same story, for example, is about Sonia Delunay. Sonia Delunay, who we know as a U- French artist, French painter, and the founder of what we call simultanism. She was born in Odessa. She was she was born in Ukraine, and later uh, she traveled to. Uh, when she was five years old, she tra- traveled to Russia, and when she was eighteen years old, she left Russia. Russian Empire, um, in order to go to Germany and later to France, but Sonia Delaunay, which is French painter, but she also wrote in her autobiography that she is uh, uh, that the, the most great experience uh, maybe influence in her life was the colors, the Ukrainian colors she recalled from her childhood. Um, this is also important. There are also people like Alexandre Exter. Uh, also with Ukrainian roots. All these people surely at this beginning of the 20th century, they moved a lot. They moved to Europe because Europe at that time was a kind of a um, huge laboratory of all kind of avant-garde, all all kind of uh, new new art. And a lot of people came from Ukraine, but unfortunately a lot of these people, they are presented to be Russians. Uh, Look, for example, what happened in Kherson, um, region in this village uh, Chernyanka. This village was a kind of a sacred place for a kind of a group of people uh, because uh, um, brothers Burluk, Volodymyr and David, they had their their own house there, their family house, and they were invited their friends. And a lot of people whom we call today futurists or cubo futurists, they spent months there discussing, painting, writing poems. For example, one of the greatest poets of the time, Vladimir Hlebnikov, he is Russian, spent a summer there, and he left his manuscripts and his papers and his poems there. He was really kind of genius. He was Russian, but he was digging very deeply into Slavonic languages and trying to find these ancient truths. He was inventing his own Language, I mean, cosmic language, maybe in a way. And he was very much close to Burluk. And Burluk, they left uh, Russian Empire at the time they immigrated uh, to Japan, if I'm not mistaken, and then to United States. So they were it was story of immigration, and they are known in this. They were very well known abroad, but nobody writes Burluk, Ukrainian uh, painter. Uh, everybody was writing like Russian painter, etc., etc. So many stories like that, and this Ukrainian uh, avant-garde, we are uh, re- not reinventing. We are discovering for for ourselves these uh, Ukrainian roots of Russian avant-garde for several years already. So we touched
0: upon several topics, and, and let's try to um, to lead to some maybe generalizations we we talked a little bit about antiquity and the role of antiquity for ukrainian culture we talked uh, very little about the baroque baroque is uh, is also very kind of a european element because the baroque the 17th 18th century it is it is very interesting uh epoch in, in european culture when you see a catholic uh reaction to the to the Protestantism. But the interesting things about Ukraine is that this enlarging, expanding Catholic Church through Jesuits, through the new universities, etc. This idea of triumphal church, it went to the Eastern Europe, it found Orthodox people like right, the, the, the Eastern Christianity. And uh, it was It was very pushing. It was also pushing for unification of churches. The Orthodox resisted to this, and while resisting to this Catholic church uh, uh, culture, they responded with Catholic means, with Latin uh, language, with the literature in Latin, with the architecture, which copied in some ways the the Catholic Baroque architecture, (coughs) etc. And out of this, maybe also this is one of the elements out of which the modern ukraine was born uh, under this synthesis between the catholic ch- uh, c- culture and the orthodox culture right this this inter in, uh, this exchange very very interesting exchange we talked also about romanticism we talked about avant-garde so maybe there are some some of the generalization that we we can make about this ukrainian and european culture if we talk about the medieval times this famous Kievan Rus, or as it was called, Rus, uh, out of which in the uh, basically 17th, 18th century, Peter I invented, thanks to Ukrainian intellectuals, invented the concept of Russia. Uh, But Rus uh, is is not a Slavic term, It's, it's it's a Scandinavian term, and basically it designated a certain most probably tribe of Scandinavians who came here. So, Rus, the big empire, the big statehood in Eastern Europe, in the center of Kiev, was a kind of a bridge between East and West. But more importantly, even for me, between North and South. North and
1: South, first of all. uh,
0: Between Scandinavians, the Varangians, the Vikings, and the Byzantine Empire.
1: Yeah, because if you look, for example, at St. Sophia, so there's a main cathedral built in the 11th century. So at the time of the of the state of, of Rus' it has a very explicit uh, traits coming from Byzantine art. So um, this is a kind of a really link not only between West and East, and east was inexisting at the, at the way, in a way because when rus existed rus existed there were no Moscovia. Moscovia was founded several centuries later and namely yeah it was a, it was a link between north and between south and a, a place of uh, trade and place of dialogue between between mediterranean culture and and northern culture
0: And interestingly, uh, if you go, for example, to today and we went before the war, we were in Venice, in San Marco Cathedral, which is also, as we know, had been built under the great uh, influence of the Byzantine architecture. We see images which are so close to the images in Saint Sophia in Kiev. So we, we we can trace these interesting interesting influences, interesting examples. So we see how in the medieval times, in a way, Ukraine Ukrainian lands were were this connection between north north and south and it, it's interesting also to think about this today because today uh, we see so much support from the north we see so much support from sweden for example this deep interesting connections between sweden and ukraine which is which are reflected even in the colors which are reflected in the in the story of, of the early uh, 18th century when charles the, the 12th was basically going through Ukraine and had the help of Ukrainian Hetman Mazepa. Uh, we can we can talk about the the uh, the negotiations, the diplomatic relations between Ukrainian Cossacks and the Swedes, etc. Or we can talk about Finland and Ukraine, how how much they are connected in destinies, uh, because they both like resisted resisted expansionist Russia.
1: And we do hope that our war will not last longer than their war with Russia.
0: Yes, the, the winter war uh, in the in the nineteen.
1: And on the other side, this connection to to Byzantine Empire, to Turkey, which also we benefit the uh, kind of support uh, of uh, President Erdogan at that very moment. And the uh, Turkish Jones, Bayraktar, <laughs> has become a kind of very popular... Popular invention here because a k- kind of symbol in a way, kind the kind of symbol of this Ukrainian resistance. Because if you say a word "baraktar" here, everybody understands what what kind of machine is it and what what in which purpose do we use it. So we use it to resist against Russian armies. So this kind of knows and thousand mm, connections. So here in Ukraine. It and coming ba-
0: and coming back to. To, to the very city of Constantinople. One of the important recent events in Ukrainian culture is the creation of the uh, PCEU, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, in which metropoli is now connected to Constantinople. So it was a restoration of something which was broken in the late 17th century, already after Ukrainian lands were under Moscow, uh, under Moscow but basically this Christianity, Kiev Christianity, was with Constantinople for almost thousand years, from the 10th century when when Kiev was baptized until uh, the late 17th century, and only recent centuries it was under Moscow. So let's n- let's not forget this fact as well.
1: Yeah, that's it. And this religious uh, perspective is also very important politically. Uh, what people sometimes don't understand what all this struggle is about, it's about the, about the origins of Christianity here. Because uh, uh, Kiev was really baptized in the 10th century, it's quite early, even in, in, in the European context. It's quite early, and everything start started here, and in a way, for, for in, mi- in Slavs, in Middle Ages, if yes, indeed, and in, for Middle, if you talk about Middle Ages, what you call Russia today is a kind was a kind of a province, you know, province uh, uh, in comparison with the Saint in Kiev.
0: So it's interesting how the word Russia, if we look at it, because Russians are saying Russia, they're really sacralizing this word, but it comes from the Scandinavian word Rus, which was uh, translated into Greek, and when you translate it into Greek, uh, you have the term Russia. And if you translate it into Latin, you have the term Russia. So, basically, it's it's a term which is coming from Scandinavia. <laughs> also, from these two poles of, of Rus, you know, from the, from the north, uh, from the Swedes and from the Greeks, like, or from the Finns and, and from the Greeks. Like, from all these
1: countries, Russia doesn't want uh, to join NATO. NATO.
0: Yeah, why? Well, exactly. That, that That's interesting, yes. How it's coming back, yes, Sweden and Finland, how they're revenging Russian imperialism. Because they given the word and now they want to to join NATO. Okay, let's let's think further. So, medieval ages, right? The early modern period. Um, there is a great fantasy among Ukrainian historians who like to think about that that the first mention of the of the Cossacks of the Zaporozhian Cossacks is fourteen ninety two which is the, also the, the date, as we know, of, of uh, discovery, the so-called discovery of America by Columbus, which is also the date of, of, of uh, the death of, uh, uh, of uh, Lorenzo the Magnificent in Florence, so the kind of the end of this Quattrocento Renaissance in Italy and uh, but it's interesting how we look at this early modern period this, this culture culture right we mentioned already the ukrainian baroque which uh, as we said was a kind of a very interesting synthesis between this catholic counter reformation orthodox Counter Counter Reformation, so in in a very peculiar way, and some some scholars are even saying that you look what what was happening in in, in Mohila Academy, for example, in the seventeenth century in Kiev, uh, this Orthodox rea- reaction to Catholicism is also kind of a the Ukrainian. Um, version of Protestantism as well, right? So Ukrainian Ukrainian Protestant, the rereading of books, retranslating the books, the sacred books, etc. So th- this is very, very, very interesting to, to think about.
1: Yeah, that's what's a very intense period in Ukraine and Cossacks, they became also became a kind of symbol of Ukraine, at least uh, the symbol of freedom, of liberty, very important for Ukrainian culture. Because Cossacks were people living... Uh, living uh, in Dnieper, yeah, on the Cossack siege, and they were defending. So they, they were living in the borderlands in a way. They were defending all the other land against enemies, against um, Turkish, against Tatars, and all these people. They are also symbol of the brave people, brave people, independent people, uh, strong people. Right? People not living in cities. This is not urban culture. This is a kind of uh, culture close to these steps, but this not, is not a warrior
0: so. class, right? So we can compare uh, and the iconography of the Cossacks at some way compares them to uh, to the knights, knights meaning the medieval knights, right? The and, and this knighty culture, is a, it's a very important element why we have a new aristocracy was born from the Cossacks in the 17th century. So these people who were who kind of warriors and who were saying that they gained their nobility uh, out of this. But interestingly, we, say, we, we, we see this connection between the medieval princely times and the Cossacks. This is something what Ukrainian historian said, he, he likes to talk about how in this mythology of the Cossackdom we have this kind of a continuity between the medieval princely times and this new aristocracy. So Cossacks were playing a very important role in the European diplomacy. Uh, Many of them, many of the Cossack leaders like Bohdan Khmelnytsky or Ivan Mazepa were highly educated people, extremely educated people. Now we have people who are in Sweden and uh, trying to look into this correspondence between uh, Ukrainian Cossack Hetmans, in particular Mazepa and the Swedish kings in Swedish. And it's very, very interesting, you know, to, to, to follow this. So we, we, we have these connections. We can also say that in a way, the, the war which Bohdan Khmelnytsky started against the Poles in 1648 was a continuation of the Thirty Years' War in, in the European continent between the Catholics and Protestants. Um, the the difference is that the war started by Khmelnytsky was a war between Orthodox and Catholics. So in a way it was a continuation of this war, continuation of these global trends and global changes. And we would not understand the, 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 the Ukrainian history after, after this element, that Orthodox Cossacks, finally they decided to fight against this triumphal Catholic Church, and uh, melnitsky didn't find it better way to, uh, to strike a deal with Moscow Tsar.
1: Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there is also a a difference to to highlight between this Cossack culture, this warrior culture. uh, These were warriors, they were diplomats. They were integrated into this European diplomacy and European wars as well. But it was not a... Um, Monarchy. It was not an idea about this political uh, rigid uh, structure, you know, with a king, one king, and then this monarchy family, or like Tsar in uh, Russia. So, yes, there were many hetmans, but they were changing, and it was not a story of dynasty. They were elected? They, They were elected. And this is a kind of a different political culture from the very beginning.
0: So I think it it brings us very closer to, of course, to Rzeczpospolite, to Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in which also the kings were elected. But this in turn brings us to the... Uh, Holy Roman Empire, where emperors were elected, at least in the initial stages. Later, you, you had finally this dynasty of Habsburgs. Uh, but yes, the, this electivity of the uh, sovereign. And another very important uh, element is that uh, the Cossacks, striking a deal with the Hetman, they were uh, defending their rights and freedoms. And this concept rights and freedoms was very much enshrined into the way how Cossacks were thinking. So we can basically trace this story back to the European culture, of political culture starting from Magna Carta in Britain or starting from the idea of autonomy of the cities, Italian city-states, German cities, etc. And by the way, this German law... Uh, which was which was proclaiming the autonomy of the of the cities towns against the uh, the, the power of a, uh, of, a, of a of a of a feudal was very important in Ukraine. So the cities towns and even villages which were under the territory of the Rzeczpospolita, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, they enjoyed this autonomy. And this never happened in Russia, by the
1: way. Yes, indeed. And the Cossacks were extremely important for Taras Shevchenko for the 19th century, where there are no more Cossacks in reality, but uh, they were important for Shevchenko like uh, um, noble people. Because... Ukraine culture at that very moment, in the 19th century, it was a kind of a low, low culture, I, I don't know, peasantry culture, culture of people uh, who are uneducated, who live in villages, and high culture, I mean, refined culture came from Russia. And what... Um, Why Shevchenko is so important? Because he created this admiration for Cossacks and he was just putting them like a real national aristocracy. And this is important. He was recalling all these moments important for Ukrainian culture.
0: It's very interesting. We now turn right to from the Baroque, from the 17th and 18th century to the 19th century. Then we'll go to the 20th and 21st century, I guess. So in the 19th century, is, what is interesting is that you're you telling that this high culture was coming from Russia. Look, the high culture in the 18th century was coming from Ukraine. Therefore, we are talking about all these educated people uh, who, who, who knew Greek or Latin, who were translators of, uh, uh, of, um, of the Greek or Latin poets. And the the high culture literature culture in Russia at the time in the early eighteenth nineteenth century was basically a replica to the high culture primarily of the French speaking world, and uh, when there was this process of assimilation of Ukrainian uh, gentry to to not only Ukrainian Georgian gentry for example to this uh, to this Russian culture, uh, I give only one example all the time. Just look at the names of uh, russian generals during the napoleonic wars you will find there georgians like bagratun you will find their germans you will find their french well maybe you will find Kutuzov, which is not you know so uh and and i was always surprised so the the society uh, of of during napoleonic wars in st petersburg was everything but russian you know and it's interesting that Ukrainians played a very important role at that time. But uh, they were already considering themselves as not as Ukrainian gentry or Cossack gentry, yeah, but as, as right. imperial, uh, imperial gentry. And uh, in the Decemberist movement, uh, there were lots of you know, Ukrainians as well, like Muravyov Apostol or, or some other people, right? And it's interesting that Shevchenko comes in a moment, in the romantic moment in Europe, when thanks to primarily to german romanticism to scottish romanticism people are saying look we are not interested in this high culture this salon culture we're interested in something very deep in in the uh, in the culture of those of the silence yeah,
1: coming from people from coming from, from people. people
0: of those we are interested in the words of those people who were deprived of their words and who are linked
1: woman. to the nature because in romanticism you also have this cult of nature so close to the source so all this not artificial culture who lost its links to to nature but something very very vivid very vital so that's why they Cossacks be- became interesting for Shevchenko as well because they are they are close to geography because Cossacks is also geographical phenomena. There will be no Cossacks in Ukraine without Dnieper and without Parogi. And without Parogi how you say it, without these uh ge- the rocks,
0: the Dnipro rocks. Rocks,
1: yes. yeah, without all these uh, geographical specificity of the region. Which they used for their wars and for their battles and for their activity. So, and for Shevchenko, that's right, they were important. There was something. Somebody coming from this specific land, you know, from this Ukrainian landscape. They were born by this Ukrainian landscape. They were not universal. They were not something coming from Europe, like like French language, for example, widely spoken in the 19th century everywhere in Moscow or in St. Petersburg. We do remember all these nannies, you know, teaching French for these small kids in Russian noble families, and they were speaking French fluently. Uh, in from the early childhood, um, so it's is a position between this uh, artificial European culture and this culture coming from from roots, from people. I don't know from geography, something you know very natural. So hu-
0: human beings. Uh, started to be like plants with their yeah. roots, you know. They reinvented geography.
1: And Shevchenko, he, he, was, he was reinventing the Cossacks because there were no real Cossacks at his time.
0: Well, there were hairs of the Cossacks. An interesting thing is that it's also a very interesting social phenomenon is that Cossacks of the, let's say, of the Bohdan-Hmelnitski era of the 17th century they were anything but peasants. They were yeah. saying, "Okay, we are we are another kind of state, social state in, in this in in, in their uh, concepts of the time. So n- not a class, but a state. What was called a state, uh, and we are different from the aristocracy, from the priests, and from the city dwellers, from the from the burghers, from the bourgeois. But we are not peasants. We are this new warrior class. What Shevchenko did, he said that look." Uh, what happened during Cossackdom and then what happened in the 18th century during the peasants' rebellion in, in like Haidamaki uh, and all the rest is the same phenomenon. So basically Ukrainian peasants are real heirs of, uh, of the Cossacks. And it was very interesting because it was just destroying any kind of social hierarchy uh, typical for medieval times, early modern times, that you have warriors, which are aristocrats, and then you have peasants, all this populace. In, you yeah, know. he was
1: speaking about this Cossack spirit. Yeah, you know, I know of, of of Ukrainian peasants, and it, it is linked uh, uh, to the image of freedom, to the image of rebellion, to the image of these her- military heroism—not military, but uh, not not really military in, in, in if you speak about peasants. But he was making this link between uh, ancient Cossacks and, mm, mm, contemporary, and current peasants. Current yes. peasants. Yes. And this is important in the time of Romanticism because peasants were important at the time. I mean, their songs, all the folkloristic studies started at that very time. Why? Because it was important for people to collect, I don't know, all these uh, songs, all these... Uh, um, what else? Music, all these poems, all these... Uh, people's culture, in fact. I mean, popular culture. I mean, what we call today mass culture, but this was not mass culture. It was a uh, popular culture.
0: And it's very interesting because also in the relations between Ukrainian culture and other European cultures, because, of course, there are some Polish influences. Uh, there are some Czech and Slovak influences, by the way, on, on Shevchenko, because uh, Shevchenko writes several poems to, uh, to Jan Hus and to... Uh, about about this Hussism. so it's very very interesting element, but I think that what is interesting, right? At that time, like this Saint Petersburg culture, uh, cultural milieus were really looking for something like that in the Russian culture, and they didn't find anything like this, and and suddenly they find it in. What they call the little Russian culture, the, they try to appropriate it. Mm-hmm. So people like uh, Shevchenko and Markov were considered in Saint Petersburg as a, well. This kind of also element of Russian Russian culture, the great
1: Russian culture. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, um, talk a little bit ab- about this counter example of Markov because Markov of is the opposite example. She was born in Russia. She was Russian by. You know, she was born in a Russian family. But then when she was 17 years old, she married a Ukrainian, Markovich, Ukrainian ethnographer of the time. And she started really talking Ukrainian and writing Ukrainian. And she became a Ukrainian writer with her several texts. She she became famous um, with this Narodne Upovidanya, Peoples, how, how you translate it?
0: People's stories,
1: people's stories, yeah, folkloric stories, uh, and it was a kind of a counter example. Somebody moving from this bigger, more powerful Russian culture into a smallest one, <laughs> but then we know that she became also Russian. She she switched to Russian language later on, and then she moved um, to France. To Europe in general, and then she, she wrote even in 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 European languages. So and she had this uh, French identity as well. But Markovchuk was not a typical, you know, typical example of the time because most of writers. Let us take example of Gogol. Gogol started. Uh, he, he was born in Ukraine. He was talking Ukrainian. He moved to Saint Petersburg, and then he started writing Russian. And we, now they present Gogol as the biggest, one of the biggest uh, uh, Russian writers, but also as a founder of uh, of the whole literature of nineteenth century. They say that all our literature comes from Gogol.
0: Exactly, and and Gogol comes from Ukraine. So. But Gogol, uh, and, and why it is that? Because Gogol really uh, found something in, in Ukrainian popular culture, in, in all the stories about, uh, about devils, about, uh, about magic, about everything else. But he was living in the epoch which thought that all this Ukrainian culture is dead. So it was a thing of the past. You cannot regenerate it anymore. Shevchenko thought that you can regenerate it, and he did regenerate it, and then he created the fashion, like Markovchok, who was Russian, who was coming from, from, for Ukraine, because at the time when Markovchok was doing that, it was late 1850s, it was fashionable to become an ethnographer it was fashionable to go uh, on the markets and listen to uh, to to grand grand uh, grandmothers songs etc so it was in why i'm saying this and here we come to one of the ve- very important features of ukrainian culture is that it always in a dialogue between modernity and tradition and uh, uh, it, in ukrainian tradition Contrary to probably, well, this is one of the biggest topics of European culture in from the 19th century onwards until today, right? The big fight between modernity and tradition, right? And I think that Ukrainian culture and what I've heard also from some other cultures in which the idea of modernization also was deeply linked to the idea of national emancipation. I'm talking about the Baltic cultures, for example. I heard uh, from many people from from these countries the same idea, is that uh, there is it's not kind of a a clash between modernity and tradition, because uh, Ukrainians, for example, seek for emancipation from the empire, and they seek this emancipation both in kind of a modernization of their culture, but also in uh, going deep into traditions.
1: Yes, indeed. And let's look to another example, Olga Kobylanska. Uh, Olga Kobylanska, also Ukrainian writer, another female uh, Ukrainian writer in in in, in our literature. Um, it was a. Uh, another story for emancipation because it was a feminist emancipation. Uh, Olga Kublianska was a German-speaking uh, woman in the from, beginning from Chernivtsi. From no, f- she was born somewhere in in a t- in Romania in in contemporary Romania
0: in Iasi. No,
1: no, uh, not no, no, in Iasi in a small smaller smaller town, uh, and she was born in, a, in a, a German-speaking family, and her first literary texts were written in German. But then she met several women people who were also in this trend of Ukrainian folklore, Ukrainian culture. And she switched into Ukrainian when she was a kind of teenager, maybe 16, maybe 17 years old. And she started writing all all these extremely important for Ukrainian literature texts with this emancipation idea, because social, social emancipation, this is not about empire, this is about women, and uh, this modernization uh, project came together with this uh, emancipation. I mean, and also this idea of land, very important in Ukrainian culture. I mean, she has this uh, famous text called Land which was uh, maybe the most popular during Soviet times because it's a conflict about land, about property, and about all that. And she was criticizing these fundamentals. She's very important um, from that point of view. And another case of somebody coming from uh, German language, from a different language into Ukrainian, she was fond of Nietzsche. And what we see in her literary text we see female characters who look like zarathustra i know these uh, uh overhuman how you say it see superhuman. superhuman superhuman characters but not male but female characters i know very strong female characters it's about uh, independence for women it's about subjectivity as well it's about the the fact that women are also important. Um, and this is a modernization project because the links of Kobelanska to Germany, to this European uh, culture, was something she came from. She came from this European culture to Ukrainian culture. And she found founded something very different were different from this classical Ukrainian culture of the 19th century, you know. But at the same time, she was in constant dialogue with Ukrainian culture. For example, she was a close friend to Lesia Ukrainka. Lesia was a very friend. There were also some gossips about their love story, at least uh, based uh, on their uh, letters, their correspondence, which was published, uh, at least a part of this correspondence, because we, uh, we, don't, we, we do have letters of uh, Lesa Ukrainka, but we don't have these le- letters of um, Kobylanska in it. So this is another example of this dialogue between modernization and tradition at the same time. And Lesa Ukrainka is also very interesting here.
0: Yes, and uh, well, the, the very fact that female writers, the women played such such a big role and in, in our Pantheon literary pantheon, uh, I consider myself that Lesio Ukrainka is the biggest writer of, of Ukrainian literature of all time. Uh, but really Ukrainian literature is something that you if, if you if you make a list of five most important writers of the 19th century, maybe three of three of the five will be women, right? Yeah, right. If, yeah. I, if you say in, in this way.
1: And you can compare that to, uh, to European literatures. They're not so common. To not, have. So many,
0: not so many. Not this, so many. This proportion is not like that. So Lysia Ukrainka is obviously one of the key examples of this connection between Ukrainian and European uh, cultures because she spends so much time and effort to reappropriate the great topics of the European culture in the Ukrainian language. Uh, she wrote her dramatic poems, uh, her poems about ev- everything, about about early Christianity, about um, Roman
1: Empire, Roman
0: Empire, about Greeks and the Romans, about uh, European Puritanism, about ancient Greece, Cassandra, about Scottish, Scottish. about sco- Scottish wars for for independence. So. And and lots and lots more, lots of Oriental topics, etc. And uh, when I'm thinking of her, I'm thinking about Shakespeare, because Shakespeare did the same for British culture, for English culture. He was he was creating at the time when, you know, English culture was was only kind of a with with when England was still provincial, let's say, in this way. And uh, he was he was looking for topics and he he tried to impress everything like from Italian history from ancient Roman history from uh, from ancient English history etc etc so I think this is this is very important this is this is very interesting to 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 see so how Lassia Ukrainka in this early 20th century uh, because she he unfortunately she's not very well known in in the West but her dramatic poems is really up on on the level of, of Shakespeare and on the level of Racine and on the level of Evropides, so so very high level of
1: dramatic art. And at the same time, she was always reproached not to talk about Ukraine. And people were asking, why are you writing about all these distant cultures, about all these distant stories? You are not right. Um, uh, we should explain that she was born in a very Ukraine, Ukraine, centered on Ukraine family, uh, and that uh, Dragomanov was her um, uncle. And her mother, Olena Pchilka, was one of very active, also writer, and very active in this uh, Ukrainian uh, national, uh, we would say, movement in the 19th century. So, and Lesia Ukrainka was profoundly Ukrainian and profoundly anti-Russian. Uh, for example, if you read uh, her um, piece, uh, drama uh, called Boyarynya, it's a it, it contains very actual political judgments about contemporary Russia. So you can just copy paste it and it'll be, it will be the same story as today. And this Boyarnya was censored during Soviet times because Lesya Ukrainka became a kind of a star during Soviet times. She was uh, censored, but she was present in the canon, in the Soviet literature. But this uh, very drama was forbidden. Nobody knew that she wrote that, at least during Soviet times. Uh, I think that Lesia Ukrinka presents another way of dialogue between modernity and tradition. Because on one hand, she is the biggest, the biggest modernist in our culture, without any doubt. But at the same time, she's it, so she's so fond of this tradition. But she understands the tradition not like Ukrainian tradition, but European tradition and even some Asian tradition. She, she By the way, she died in Georgia, but because of her illness, tuberculosis, she was um, obliged to go to Egypt for this specific uh, climate. Um, And these oriental uh, topics um, are quite present in her literary texts. And uh,
0: I think it's very interesting to see uh, how Lesya Ukrainka, for example, uh, so, so there is of course this imperialism from some western european countries towards eastern asian countries a concept known as uh, orientalism so one thing when the french writers uh, british writers are writing about egypt for example another thing is when russian writers are writing about caucasus and also ukraine and uh, have also this kind of a uh, inferior uh, look, you know, at at this culture. So kind of a mirroring this Western Orientalism. But uh, Lesi Ukrainka, who is coming from one colony and to another colony. And this empathy between the colonized people, different colonized people, different people who are struggling for their independence. It's a very interesting topic. And also a topic which is uh, overlooked, which is not really... Uh, had attention to in, uh, I think, uh, in, in, in Western scholarship. So people are looking at the empire against the colony, colony against the empire. But what's happening, or the empire against the empire? But what's happening when two... Uh, colonized culture. So two cultures who are striving for their independence are are talking to each other. And and this is also one of the elements of lesi Ukraine, very, very interesting elements. So there are numerous other examples when Ukrainian modernists were at the same time traditionalists, like Vasil Stefanik or Kotsubinsky or others. And the same we can say about Ukrainian avant-garde. So we are smoothly going to this topic. And I think uh, the most uh, the most dishonest in this appropriation of Ukrainian avant-garde by the Russian avant-garde, is that they their sources are totally different. Because the sources of Ukrainian avant-garde, and by the way, also partially by Belarusian avant-garde, they're really in this folkloric culture, they're really in this, you know, uh, very natural things. Very
1: local, yeah. Very and therefore, the
0: local. In, in, in the abstract, so-called abstract painting of Malevich, you can see the real, very concrete elements of the popular culture, of Ukrainian forms, of Ukrainian colors, etc.
1: In a way, the Ukrainian avant-garde is a new romanticism, in a way, in its in its attitude at least towards to nature, towards everything which is natural, which is linked to landscape, uh, which is linked to people living on this land. That's why, specifically why um, Malevich is so fond of Ukrainian peasants, because they live on this land, and they they are creating something from this land, and these colors coming from nature, they are not artificial. This is, um, yeah, this is a kind of uh, try. Russia appropriates everything which is local, you know, and presents it as a product of this impi- imp- empire, you know. Yeah.
0: And this trend is traditionalist modernism, modern moderniza- modernizing traditionalism. We see it also in the current culture. We see in, in many examples of the uh, neo- folkloric music, for example, how Ukrainian musicians are now experimenting with the folklore and at the same time with the uh, very modernist means uh, means of expression and this is this is a fantastic thing so we can i think we can make this trend from uh, i don't know Kotlyarevsky and Shevchenko through uh, the the modernist Ukrainian modernists like Lesi Ukrainko, Ivan Franko through go Ukrainian avant-garde to, av- to Go A or to Dachabracha, or to Onuka and all to this
1: VV as yeah,
0: well. to VV, to all these popular Ukrainian brands. You can see at Ukraine World if you are interested in in this. We have several articles on Ukrainian uh, contemporary music, the folkloric music, the ethno music, and uh, we are also making uh, making a video about that. So it's it's really really very interesting. I think we will end on this. Uh, we, we try to cover a very vast majority of topics. We really hope that we don't confuse you very much with a lot of names, with a lot of phenomenon, but we are really trying to enracinate or inroot Ukrainian culture in this European culture to show that um, the in, in some ways it is very close, it is very inspired by the European cultures. In some ways it is probably giving some very specific responses which are also can be interesting for the European culture as well. Um, and uh, as I said, this is only one one episode in the uh, in the cycle, in the series of five episodes. We thank uh, the delegation of the European Union to Ukraine in supporting this kind of a little cycle. It's very important to talk about Ukrainian culture and European culture. During these horrible, uh, horrible days of the war, the war, lots of sufferings, of course, around us. You know, we're making this podcast under um, air, air air raid sirens, and there are missile strikes on our cities. Yesterday, there was kind of a missile uh, near to us, in where we are staying with with Tanya. But still, I mean, despite all that, we, we should continue to think. We should continue to be humans we should talk about culture uh, about ukraine and europe because these are these are the things we are fighting for these are the things which which are very dear for us so this was a explaining ukraine podcast uh, Uh, by ukraineworld.org ukraineworld is brought to you by internews ukraine this is a website in english about ukraine follow us on social networks on twitter facebook instagram linkedin follow these podcasts on google podcasts apple podcasts uh, youtube uh, soundcloud everywhere you listen to your podcasts and uh, you can support us on patreon patreon.com slash ukraineworld stay with us and stand with ukraine